When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. We are the three co-hosts of the show. How are you guys doing? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm quite well. Can't complain. Evan, uh, who's, on the, uh, who's on the old program this week? Today, it is a return appearance by one of my favorite guests on the show, Taffy Brodesser Ackner. She came on the show in 2015 when she was a uh, freelancer with like nine bylines at the same time. That was a big topic of our conversation. She came back in 2019 when she was a very established profiler working for the New York Times Magazine. Was, was that the live show? That was the 2019 was right after the live show. We, we did a live show with her, but we didn't put that out. We had some chicken with her before that live show. That was the last time I saw that. It was right before the that was like right before COVID, right? That, 2019. Yeah. For uh, for people at home. Uh, there's still a bunch of boxes of T-shirts from that live show that are like directly behind me. So maybe, just maybe, we may put the T-shirts on sale again so that I can clear some uh, space in my home recording studio here. <laughs> so in that show, in the 2019 show, she was a uh, established feature writer for the New York Times Magazine and GQ. But she had also just written a novel called Fleischman is in Trouble that was a New York Times bestseller. And now that novel has become a TV series for Hulu, uh, for which she is the showrunner, the head writer. Wow. Uh, Yeah, she did the whole thing. It's out next week, I think. And uh, so I drug her back into the studio to answer all of my questions about how this came about, her role in it, how she feels about it all. And as always, she was very open and very funny and very fun about uh, talking about her journey through all this stuff. Um, so it's great to have her back. Man, write a novel, get it turned into a TV show, and then be the showrunner on the TV show. That's like uh, hidden for the Triple Crown right there. Yeah. This show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make it. Thanks to all the good people over there, Vox. And now here's Evan with Taffy Brodesser Actor. Taffy, welcome back to the show. It's so good to be here. This is the third time we've sat down for a formal interview. I know. And I feel like the progression is interesting. Like, the first time I came in with, uh, you've got so many stories, you've got nine stories going at the same time. How do you do this? How's this working? The second time I came in with, like, You've written this book and it's getting a lot of attention. Like, what does that feel like? Now you're on the other side. This time, the bus stop next to my house has <laughs> a giant Fleischman is in trouble advertisement for the TV show that you wrote. I feel like you've moved directionally from something I knew a lot about to something I only know a little bit about. Same. So, so Same. First describe sort of where you are now. It's about to come out. What state are you in right now? I'm I'm a wreck. I'm always a wreck before something comes out. And for the first time, I'm a different kind of wreck because I carry with me the names of all of these people who have good reputations. And I'm worried I'm worried that the world won't like it, but I'm even more worried that they won't watch it. Like I I turn on television now and I watch I try to watch something and I haven't heard of any of it. And I'm a culture journalist. Like if anyone's going to hear of it, but like there's a season of something, the fifth season of something, and I've never even heard it exists. And you see all of these tiles and you think, what if what I did just becomes that tile? It's like, you know what? It's a little bit like how I feel about my Billy Bob Thornton story, which was published we talked about on this November 10th. And it is still a wound that I feel like I did something new in that profile that I was so proud of. And I still feel like 
it was not read fairly because it was born two days into what was supposed to be a Hillary Clinton victory, but was not. And like, what if I did this for three years? What if I sacrificed time with my family, time with my friends, and they don't watch it? Like, I don't even, if people hate it, that's fine. Like, I work at the New York Times, and I am accustomed, like, you can't find a story of mine where the first 10 comments aren't like, is this what you use your money for, like, to send me to do yeah, whatever yeah. I did? Like, something so degrading, not about the quality of the story, but that it shouldn't even exist. It shouldn't even exist. And this, I don't know. It's interesting to hear it in terms of, like, of course, when you say it, it's true that there are these tiles of TV shows and you haven't heard of half of them. And someone will be like, oh, my God, you haven't seen this and you've never heard of it. And you're kind of like, oh, what is that? I don't know about that because there's so much TV being created. But it's also I was thinking of it that it's sort of operating on a different level in terms of attention. Like the people who might hate it, they might be professional critics who actually are like taking it apart. The first 10 commenters are the first 10 commenters. Right. So I was thinking, Mm. are you ready for like this level of attention step up from where you are? But it sounds like you're more like, I would like the attention to at least meet. I would because of the investment people made in this. Yeah. Whereas I am not looking forward to hearing that my colleagues did not enjoy my work. I am not looking forward to like even a hedged review like I'm not and I know those things will happen and they exist but when I published the book the fact that anybody was reading it was a shock to me and what I know about television now is that the highest number of readers on any story that I ever published would be a failure for this yeah but also that tv is easy to watch and this Failure would look like either nobody clicking on it or nobody pressing next episode. And that, like, I'm, you know, I don't know if they're going to tell me those metrics. I know at the Times, they try not to have writers know those metrics, but we're journalists and find them out. Like, yeah. you know, I would like, assume in TV you can't get away from it. Like, people got those. We'll I think those you'll numbers. know if something's a success or not. I wonder what success looks like to them. I wonder what success looks like to the network. Is it like watching something for seven minutes? Is it reviews? Is it publicity? Is it people who stayed till the eighth episode? Is it people who hate watched it? Is it like, does it matter if they watch it at first or if they watch it in a year? Because you could binge it. It's not like a magazine story that loses its relevance. All right. Well, we've jumped straight into the anxiety part of it, but let's go back a little bit because (laughs) I think a fun part of this is like that it got done at all. Oh, my God. Because you know and I know many people, including myself, who have like had their thing go to be made into something and then it doesn't get made. So much less that they are an active part in creating it. Right. So I want to go back to was almost when we spoke last, the book had come out. Walk people through the process a little. People may not know, like, how does this happen? How does it happen that first someone, like, takes control of it? And how? what was your role in, in that? So I have these great rights agents. I was at ICM, which has now been eaten by CAA. And so now they are at CAA. And there were two people who were interested in the book. And I loved both of them. And I thought, how am I going to decide about this? But I wasn't going to do anything with it. I have a lot of experience in optioning magazine stories. And the way I – I don't even look at it as something that could ever get made. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to pay for two weeks of camp. Like I I look at it in modules as I did stories when I was a freelancer. This is going to pay for two weeks of camp. It's it's my only passive income. But – I remember talking to Jimmy Buffett for a story and him saying... Jimmy Buffett does not live the Jimmy Buffett life. Yes, I remember he does that. not endorse yeah, the Jimmy Buffett And I said to him, you know, I got to ask, I feel like I'm doing well at my job, but I feel like I'll never get ahead financially. And you're so rich. Like, how did that happen for you? And he answered me very sincerely. He said, well, do you keep just doing 
profiles like this? And I said, yeah, that's like my thing. I do profiles. And he said, it seems complicated. Like the thing you need is for someone to make a movie out of a profile, but then they'd be making a movie out of my life. Wouldn't they come to me? And I thought, that's very wise, Jimmy Buffett. That's like Warren Buffett levels of wisdom. He knows the business. Yeah. Yeah. He knows all the angles. And he said to me, you could think whatever you want of Margaritaville, but I knew very soon that it would be a child that supported me in my old age. Do you have any children that are supporting you in your old age? And I I was like, no, I, I don't. And I had just written this novel and it was – you know, going to be published. And I thought maybe, like, maybe that's the thing. Or maybe I should write other kinds of stories because I see all these people who have their movies. And it was just not happening for me. People optioned things, but then they bumped up against the the Jimmy Buffett knowledge of you can't really... It's hard. The elements involved in everyone agreeing to make something, it's, it's almost like magic. It's yeah. almost like religion, Like you can't believe – if I go back and look at every way this almost fell apart, a pandemic, like a literal pandemic. Like in my my version of Genesis, I'm about to make this and God decides to flood the earth. (laughs) And I'm like, but I was just about to make this TV show. Like, oh my God, your pandemic? You're bringing in a pandemic now when I was just – but I was just about to – and it was – okay, so let's go back. Yeah. So I thought I wasn't going to be part of it. You got two Two people who are, are interested, interested in and I'm interested in them. But my agents say, just wait till this comes out. This might not be – you know, I'm hearing about all of these books that are like optioned for a kabillion dollars in like while there were documents. Yeah, yeah. So I wait because as soon as I'm on the book tour – and I'm kind of not hand, – I don't handle shifts in identity well. So I'm kind of freaking out about the book that's, that, like, that seems to be on a trajectory to at least – like there are people coming to my readings. And I just didn't think that that was supposed to happen. I, you know, I was told to change the name of the book because it was too New York-y, mm. which – I don't know if you know what that's a euphemism for. <laughs> but in, they're like, in Europe, they don't like New Yorky things. And I'm like, I don't know. Do you, I think, let's use our words here. And then there was this like, can you reduce your name down to Ackner? Because it's going to be hard for people to remember your name. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't, like, it did not seem like this was fated for success, right? And so the thing I did was I cut my book leave two weeks to go on tour I cut it off because I wanted to do a story about the election I was running out of time to do a story about the election this is 2019 and I got to the times and of course everyone had called dibs on all of the profiles but I was like jokes on you because I want to do Marianne Williamson which is not you know not only is it not a profile you call dibs on. It's something you have to beg your editors to let you do. So I did that because I felt like I have to get back into the game. Like I had such a small idea of things. Like if I don't go back to work soon. So I did this story. And while I was doing the story, the book went on the bestseller list. And then suddenly there was a lot of interest and I was on this story. I didn't have time to meet with everyone who was interested. And so I asked my agents, please, you decide who I should meet with. And I took a call from Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant because when I was young and trying to be a screenwriter, Susanna Grant had written Erin Brockovich. And it, to me, was like this amazing thing for a woman to have written this muscular, excellent Steven Soderbergh movie. Like, I I couldn't believe it. And I was like, of course, just so I could talk to her. And Sarah, I knew by reputation. And I spoke to them. And they they were the only people who... I said, well, would you write it? Like, who would you hire to write it? And they said, no, you have to write it. It's like, it, it, it won't make sense for anyone else to write it. Mm. And 
that, of course, like, I was so flattered by that. But also I was like, yeah, why if I'm if I am looking for a way for my children to support me in my old age, like the children are named residuals and they are based on like really it was a money decision because I really wanted to move out of New Jersey. And as I have I been from from the minute I moved there. And then also when I talked to other people who were writers who wanted to do it, I was jealous of them yeah. that they would get to do it. And then I would hear some ideas of theirs and they seemed to not really understand what I thought of the book, meaning they liked it for different reasons, which happens in every story. But now you're going to like, will I be someone who couldn't watch that? And then a friend of mine who had had something made, I asked her what she thought of it. She was the, a passive executive producer or a producer or, some, or a consultant on it. And she said, it's fine. Like, it's like it, you have to look at it the way you look at a magazine story. She was also a magazine writer. L- look at a magazine story, which is once you sell it, it's not yours. Mm-hmm. It may You may have like four credits cards on it, but it's not yours. And... My heart was kind of broken because I had this understanding that Fleischman being my first fiction thing would be the thing that was closest to me. And these two women, I'd, I had rarely worked with women in my life. They just taught me how to do it. And there were no power issues. And they also taught me how to sort of do this while being a mother, while being a wife, while being a friend, while being someone who should probably do cardio twice a month or something. Like, I learned a lot from them, and I also got to write it. So I said yes to them. And I had two more stories to do. Actually, I had one more story to do was Tom Hanks. Mm. Was it the Val Kilmer after that? And then the Val Kilmer after that. But the Val Kilmer I had been pursuing for five years. So I was about to leave... And it was like it was like a lethal weapon movie. Like suddenly I got, you know, Val Kilmer will finally talk to you. And I was like, but I was just, okay, one last story. And we went for it. And I was in I was in Los Angeles interviewing Val Kilmer when I got an email from the Times saying that non-essential people had to come home. And I was like, Oh, I'm I'm on a Val Kilmer story. So what should I do? <laughs> and they were like, uh, "Can you finish your report?" They were very polite about it. Can you finish your reporting? What on do you the mean phone? by non-essential? I know. You know I'm, I'm talking like, about Kilmer here. I don't here. think you understand what I've landed on here. Um, and I went home, and I thought it would be dead because what happened was. Because there were bitters, I had a very good deal, and it was like a straight-to-series if they like the written pilot. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to make a pilot. Mm-hmm. And that kind of deal helps you get better actors, like actors who know that something is greenlit once they start it. it it's like, And also, you don't break your heart making something that never gets to see the light of day. Yeah, like you, they would make a full pilot in many cases and yeah. then just say, nah, And then they'd it. say, this is, yeah. Just forget it. And I always knew about this, that you have, like, the whole thing is an experiment in storytelling. You have to make the whole thing in order for anyone to really get it. The executives, like, for whatever you hear on television about, like, dumb executives, like, not one person in this equation had a bad idea. Not Like, they all wanted it to be what it was. They didn't want it to go more commercial. And... They left it all up to me. They had suggestions, but like it, at the end, it was all up to me. And the show that's there is the show that I and my producing partners and the directors all wanted. Like it's you, you read the book and you saw the show. It's the same thing, right? Yeah, it has so much fidelity to the book. I mean, like, some I, people would say what what like you could do that in a bad way, but I think it just feels like it too. Like, yeah, it's a very it it feels like it to me. So, the pandemic came, and suddenly, like the blood cells go to the site of infection. I was not an an infection. I was a deal that had just been signed, and they had a million shows that were in the middle of being shot. And what are they going to do? 
And so we created a mini room of writers who had experience in television who spent 10 weeks telling me how they would cut this up. Like, this book? Like, what would you do here? And, what, and, and, and how do you... I'm such a word person. How do you translate this into the screen? Mm-hmm. Sarah and Susanna were sort of the chiefs of that, but we had great people. We had Cindy Shupak, Boo Killebrew, Michael Beck, and our own Allison P. Davis. Mm. She oh, was Allison in there. Every, yeah, everyone there had a ton more experience than I did in this. In writing for television, in or television screen. writing, in television. And writing. so, did, wait, at this point, so did you? You had nothing then. You had not put down anything. You were just trying to like break apart the book and figure I had out where written it would the go. F- the pilot. Uh huh. And then, as we went, I wrote a document that's required that shows what each episode would be about. And then I wrote the episodes, and that was it. Like, I kept waiting for it to be, like, to have a rug pulled out. Yeah. I kept waiting for someone to have been the secret person who was in charge to come out and show themselves because that's a story I hear a lot. Yeah. And the one thing I asked of my producers, I said, I would like to go with you. The thing I would I will ask is that if I can't do the show running, please tell me that. And don't have a secret person who's who's really in charge because I I will I don't want. I just don't want to be embarrassed. Like I can take it if this is something that I'm I'm beneath right now. Like, but I can't take the humiliation of finding out that someone else that was close to me was the showrunner. It's like a game. It's like what's the kids like Among Us. Like it's like, and I keep seeing that same story. And Sarah Timberman made this promise, and not only did she make this promise, she moved from L.A. to New York and was on set every single day. So that I didn't have to have a secret showrunner. Like you could say she was the secret showrunner, but she was there to help me guide in my positions. When I got there, there was not one person who didn't have more experience than I did. And everyone was so kind to me. They were so patient with me. They, there were words I didn't know. And I realized that every time I'd been on set as a journalist, it was like theater for me, yeah. which we all kind of know, but like in a really, like real theater, like real, like, you know, people are moving so quickly. You know, I thought we'd be making TikTok dances in between setups. We did not, which is probably for the best. Epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. I mean, I know that you had written screenplays before, so like... I mean, I have a degree in film and television. I did not know one of these things. But I can imagine when you sat down for the writing, you were like, I can figure out how this goes. Like, it's writing. It has formats. It has structures. But then when you actually walked on the set, did you call one of these producers first and say, like, what do I do when I get there? Like, what do I do? I walked on there and just was... Quieter than usual. We also had two executive producers who came on as directors, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. They did Little Miss Sunshine and Ruby Sparks. And we had this great DP. And then we had these other directors who came on. Um, Something's wrong here. Every time, Everything is better. Like every single thing is like, oh, and this amazing person worked. It where just, is the, it became, it became a machine that went of itself. It just like everything sounds like a dream in some way. Like, even from the outside, without even knowing your experience of it. Because it's like, you wrote, I mean, you have, like, obviously, like, the big name, like, Jesse Eisenberg, and you have Claire Danes. But then for a smaller role, Christian Slater plays what is, like, not a huge role in the show. It's not even, it's not in every episode. It's in, like, two episodes, maybe. Christian Slater's playing this magazine writer. Right. (laughs) And 
which I think last time we talked, we talked about that character in the book. Yes. <laughs> you profiled Christian Slater in 2016, yeah. maybe? Yeah. And in the profile, you talked about how you'd always imagined interviewing Christian Slater since you were like 10 or 12 yes. years old. Yes, yes. Now he's playing a role in the TV show. It, it, it was a crazy It was a crazy. But did thing. you make these things happen? Were these things prompted by you? You were like, what about Christian Slater? Can someone send it to him? Or someone else just kismet was just like, how about Christian Slater? No. We were, okay. It's a, it's a different question. The question is, how is TV different than journalism? In journalism, you write a note. You want to write this story. This person has a publicity obligation. They try to limit your time. My skill, as I see it, was always to get more time than was asked for, right? Do you remember mm-hmm. I remember that one, that my indecent proposal quote? Did I ever tell you that? No, that whenever a, public, whenever a publicist is like, you can only have 45 minutes, I say, let me quote from my favorite movie, Indecent Proposal. Nothing will happen that he didn't want to happen. <laughs> and that usually gets a laugh, and then they can't remember what they were saying. So that's how it works. But in journalism, it's all – people don't like journalists. If we knew it before – I'm here to confirm it, that like the things that open up for you when they're this like journalism with a celebrity is a part of their job that they have to deal with. Right. The other stuff is the thing they want to deal with. They want to work. They want to be part of things that are big and have big names. And they're, and they, and some of them know that them being in it makes it big. Like everyone understands their capital and their agents understand their capital, and you put together something. It was the hardest job I ever did. It was like election night every day. Also, being a boss was not easy for me. There is a line, I don't know, if in the fifth episode where he doesn't get his promotion mm-hmm. and his kids, or his kids are like, so did you get a bigger office? And he said, I turned down the promotion. I don't want to be a boss. Everyone hates you, and you don't get to do your the thing you loved anymore. And I wrote that on a really, on a grim day. But it was mostly the a very hard, really incredible experience of making something with your own hands, of like having a say in every aspect of it. I've never made something so completely. And I would say even, I would say it's a, it's a more controlled environment. And that changed everything. That makes it not a thing where you're constantly using charm and negotiation and making promises to get more time. You you have it. You have the time. You have the money. Yeah, a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but it's also very high risk. Like when I think about, I would think about it in terms of a story, like the highest risk story I ever did was that Bill May story where, you know, they had to send me to Russia for two weeks and probably took out some minimal amount of insurance on my life. Mm-hmm. And that was a very expensive plane ride. You know, like, what are the risks yeah, to sending me like, on a story? If it doesn't work out, they can like kill it. like 10 seconds of your TV show. I know. Cost, that's Cost-wise. And you can't believe it. Like, when they would talk about I – I, the first time I looked at a budget, our line producer, I asked her for the budget. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh – it's a million trillion. Like, like I don't even ha- I don't have a place in my head for what these things cost, how much they should cost, and the overall amount of money that you spend on a television show. It is remarkable, and and it's also a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like to fail at something that's that much, versus to fail. Like, I I can think of a couple of stories I've tried that didn't work out. Right when the book came out, I was in the middle of trying to do a Miss America story. Mm. And it never just came. They wouldn't answer me. It was, like, too hard. And then I went on leave. And I still think of doing that. So please, nobody take that from me. But I did spend a weekend at the Hard Rock Cafe in Atlantic City. And I have so many words to describe the Hard Rock Cafe in Atlantic City and also the Miss New Jersey pageant. That's the thing I went to the weekend before the book came out. And it's nothing like I'm staying at the Hard Rock for a weekend. Yeah. Nothing compared to like what the budget was for the 
coffee on the set for a week, right? Like, or, you know, there are food trucks. There are trailers. Also, you don't have to, the one question people have is you didn't know how to do anything. That's okay. You only have to, like, you're not, because of unions, you're not allowed to do anything. Like, your costume designer knows everything. She was the greatest, and she could tell me, you know, we set it in 2016, and she could tell me what jeans looked like in 2016. And every now and again, for a big scene, she would say, you know, we would do a lot of planning at the beginning for a look for a character. And then for a very big scene, she'd show me options. And you'd be like, this and one, I'd not be like, that one. This one, like, not that one. Exactly. Huh. And that's what I became, the red truck, not the blue truck. And, and the, I mean, I, I don't think of you as someone who would be starstruck being surrounded by all the people, but I am interested in the... The amount that you could, like, experience the sort of, like, holy shitness of this situation. Like, you filmed in the Natural History Museum in Can New York City. Can you believe that? You're, like, filming with Claire Danes. How much were you kind of like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening today versus the pressure. Like, this feels like it's creating enormous pressure. Like, could you enjoy it? Could you, were you sitting there being like, I can't believe this is happening to me? Here are the two shocking moments that happened to me vis-a-vis what you're asking. We weren't allowed to have rehearsals because of COVID. So we got everyone. I took the cast out to dinner outdoors in December a few times so they could get to know each other. I think Jesse and Claire had one rehearsal together. And luckily, Lizzie and Jesse knew each other. But nobody knew anyone enough to play their spouse or lifelong best friend, except maybe Jesse and Lizzie. And we sat down at this table at Odeon, and the way they began talking to each other, which was very intimate, was like a punch in the stomach. Because I had always thought that I got people to open up to me. Mm-hmm. And in I was your like, profiles. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. I got them to answer questions differently than than maybe they had before. But this is a level of immediate intimacy that you have with people that you know you're going to work with for a year. And that was devastating. Hmm. Like, it was a little devastating to me. But then also I watched as they just within a second became this unit where everyone was talking fast and everyone... So, but I was too busy thinking of myself. (laughs) And then... The second time was I had a dream that I did a profile of Jesse. And the profile was the best profile I've ever written. And I woke up and I was sad I couldn't do it. Like I was sad that that ship had sailed and I would never be able to do a profile of Jesse Eisenberg. Here's the awful part. I remember what it was and it, it's a very good idea. Oh, <laughs> I'm really? not, I can't even give you it can. to you because yeah. it's like... It's such a good idea. Okay, anyway. You, you can't give it to the world. I, won't, I can't give it to the many writers here, none of whom would take it. Everyone else would hear it and be like, that's not that good. But in my mind. In the dream. In the, yeah. Be, you know. I want to go back to Christian Slater for a second because okay. I, I oh, have, have to know. Question. Okay, okay. Do, well, I just have to know, like, did you have a thing with him when he showed up where you were like, remember when I profiled you? And he was like, yeah, I really got you. Like, I, I didn't tell you anything of that profile. Like, did no. you talk about it? No, not at Well, When we asked him to do it, it was, who should we do? This is like a sort of cameo, like cameo plus. It's like a major character gets mentioned a lot, but it's like one day of work or two days of work. And all of it's in New York. And I knew he lived in New York. And he had read the book and written to me after he'd read it. And I wrote him and I said, I have this crazy idea. And he wanted to do it. And then I also asked Jake Tapper the yes, same favor. Saw, and then they were on stage. And I did, I think they were, I wrote about them for GQ the same year. And I looked at that stage and I thought, I wonder if I'm allowed to be a journalist anymore after this. Like I felt very weird about the fact that I had asked, but I felt a little better that I asked that it was a GQ thing and not a Times thing. Like the Times has so many more rules and GQ, like at the very least, we ask people to attend a party in honor of the issue, which is kind of the yeah. same thing. And they make it more fancy suits and stuff. They take totally. photos of them. Like it's a little bit of a different It's a different animal. thing. But then you also have this scene which involves 
Christian Slater playing the magazine writer with a bunch of magazine people in a Did bar. Did you see them? Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. There are 12 people. <laughs> no, what's going on there? <laughs> I'm glad you're. But you brought that. these magazine I friends said, of yours said, into can, this scene. I said, "Can you, Men's Magazine Writers of America, will you please come and populate this scene?" And they did. Well, that that uh, led me to think about something that we had talked about, just about the novel. Uh, we had talked about it more in terms of the divorce aspect of the novel mm-hmm. and people, you running into people who are like, I know who that is. Yeah. I know who you wrote about. Yeah. I feel like the the TV aspect of it could magnify that. When I was watching it, I thought, oh, a lot of like magazine writers will see themselves in that magazine writer, for better or worse, will either feel accused or celebrated, yeah. depending on how they view it. But do you feel like you're going to get more of that now that it's like, embodied in some person and someone will look at that and be like, that Jesse Eisenberg, that's me. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I, I do still hear that people are like, I know who that's about. And I say, oh, who? And they tell me. And sometimes I've never heard of those people. And sometimes I have. And sometimes people say to me, do you know my ex-wife? And I think that the thing I learned is that the Tolstoy thing is wrong. Like, all happy families are the same, all unhappy families. No, I think all unhappy families are exactly the same. Like, I think all divorces are exactly the same. They all, like, when people started reading this book or they heard I was writing it, they would tell me their story. And it was it was like, um, like a VH1 behind the music. Like, you know the rhythms of it. Mm-hmm. Nothing was ever a shocking thing. Hmm. And I guess that's how I feel about people will see that men's magazine scene and they'll wonder who that is or they'll be like, I know who that is. Or, like, is it an amalgam of a bunch of people? It's also a different story than the one I had, right? Like, I wasn't that writer at GQ. I wasn't frozen. I was not a staff writer and I wasn't frozen out. I feel like I wrote the big stories there. Yeah. So we're talking about the character in the book and now the TV show who is a magazine writer for men's magazine, but she never gets the the big stories. Right. They send, she like, leaves these because, dudes out to yeah. do these, like, blood and guts, bourbon swilling stories. Yeah, like men. Like, this is how to be a man. But you didn't, you, you're not that person. I don't feel like I was. If I was, no one has told me yet. Like, I had my own complaints at GQ, but none of them was that they wouldn't let me do the thing I asked to do. If there was any discrepancy, it's that I don't, think it would occur to me to go to the top of a mountain and and eat the still beating heart of, of a goat or whatever it is in the book. Like, I don't think that would occur to me. That is a specifically aged thing. Yeah. And I think I was more interested in other things. And some of them, Fleischman is in trouble, happened because I called up my GQ editor and said, I think I have a good story. And he was like, this is, this is not a this." This is not a good story. I that. Yeah, yeah I and and here here we are. Men divorced men on dating apps. Divorced men on dating apps, <laughs> and he's like, "Okay, it's time for you to not live in the suburbs anymore or <laughs> retire." <laughs> you're you're only in the uh, show for a second. Mm-hmm. I saw it, so I don't. You're not getting like uh, necessarily like street recognized famous off of that extra scene at the end, but. We talked at the beginning about your concerns about people not watching it. But the flip side is, like, if a lot of people watch it and it gets a lot of publicity, which I'm imagining will be the case. I understand why you have reservations about that. You may move into a different realm of recognizability, whether it's, like, name-wise, obviously, but even, like, your person. Are you ready for that element of it? I don't know. That's an interesting thing that I try not to think about. But my children, you know, who watched this book come out and in our small town in New Jersey, suddenly everyone knew who I was. And they began to think of me as famous because in this small town. But I don't know. So So the only times I've ever been recognized are in highly Jewish places. My children say that I'm Jewish deli famous, that like (laughs) if I go somewhere, I could reasonably expect a free Kanish. Do you have feelings whether you're afraid or excited about the idea that you might just walk down the street and people will be like, Taffy, I loved your show. You know what? I think that like I just went through a year of dinners with people. People don't do that. 
they people don't are do that. weird about oh, when you were you. with the these very famous people. Yeah, that did not happen to them that often. It ha- so. like, but people stared at them. People yeah. tried to interact with them. We had a waiter, like pretend not to. Yeah, pretend actually, not to, yeah. and that, yeah, it was like people are not straightforward about it. Uh-huh. But those people are very famous. Like those people are very meaningful in the lives, in people's lives because they have enacted some emotion that meant something. Right. I don't know if it would be the same thing. Right. But I do know that the most hilarious thing was that when Jesse, Lizzie, Adam, and I had a dinner once, and someone came up to the table and said, are you Taffy? And we all laughed so hard. And she almost walked away, and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to do that. I said, you see who I'm with. And she said, that's how I knew it was you. I thought it might have been you. And that was like the time I got recognized. So, but what does it mean for you returning to reporting? First of all, are you going to return to reporting? I'm scheduled to. I hope to. I, I I have come to the conclusion now that I've written a novel and some episodes of television that a magazine story is like my best format in that the thing I do is an ironic or absurd play against the thing it's in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to write an emo Gwyneth Paltrow story in the New York Times font is not the same as just writing a Gwyneth... Like, part of the theater of that story, or of any story, is that it's in the New York Times. And the New York Times is a place where you can expect serious, in-depth journalism and not someone who crying all the time or has to go to the bathroom or is afraid of someone, right? Like, I, I feel like that was the best version of my writing, and I, and I would love to do it again. I don't know what, you know, I've started talking to my bosses about the rules, about what, what would I, so right, what would I be able to? Yeah, what would you be allowed to I do? mean, right, like, with the consolidation of agencies, like, could I write about someone who has the same agent as Jesse Eisenberg? And what I would say to that is, like, the thing I always felt very proud of was that I was not a friend of the court. Like, I did not pursue relationships with these people afterward. And I think that the profiles that I see that make me really cringe are the ones where the writer is working very hard to tell you, and this is like historically, Mm -hmm. I haven't been reading a lot lately, but historically, like, look at me. I was with the person. Whereas you should really be like, it was crazy. I was with the person. As opposed to at some point I became one of them. And the people I know who do this well don't do that. And I feel like, but you feel you could you could still maintain that. I I hope so, but I do wonder if, you know, one someone's publicist will see me. I don't think it's fair for someone's publicist or agent to see it's me, and then tell their client, "Don't worry, she'll be good to you," because I'll be who I am to you. Like my vanity as a writer is bigger than any sort of future relationship I ever want with a publicist or agent. Mm. But they might say, oh, she's one of us. Yeah. And that's like dangerous, right? That's like it's probably unethical. It's unfair. And it's dangerous because I think I already didn't have the affect of a regular journalist. Like I'm goofy. I laugh. I cry. I. My name is Taffy. Like all the things that you don't expect were already there. And to also say, don't worry, she's one of us. I mean, am I? I guess that's the question. Am I? I don't know. Do you think I am from where you're sitting? I'm having like a real identity crisis over it. I need to be real with all of you. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to tell. I mean, there's a couple things going on. There, There, there are rules. There's sort of like a disclosure element where it's sort of like, do you have to say like, I am a part of this industry? But there's a lot of... Just so you know, I'm really a journalist. Like, think of how you say that. Yeah. I thought this through. Like, what do I say to somebody? Like, just so you know, I'm at my job. You could just do non-film and TV. Right. Then I could do profiles of, you mean other people? Yeah. (laughs) Non-celebrities? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
Am I also afraid to find out that the reason people were reading my work was because they were actually interested in the famous person? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much vanity in this. Like, even when your name is in, like, the four-point New York Times font, the thing I kept coming across was that night where everyone was very open to each other. And... I keep thinking about the ethics of the celebrity profile now. I always thought that I was ahead of the ethics because I wasn't mean. I never made jokes at people's expenses. At least I don't think I did. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are various degrees of that. I was funny in stories, but I don't know if at their expense. And I know there are a couple of people who really hated their stories, and I don't understand why because I did not ask. But I do have a question now about the ethics of taking somebody – who in success hopes to pretend to be somebody else all day and then making them sit across from me so I could tell the world what I saw Mm -hmm. when they were not being a character. Like, that isn't what they wanted to do. They wanted to do the other thing. They wanted to subvert their personality into something else. And now I'm just like, well, congratulations on doing that successfully because now you have to sit with me for what you think is 45 minutes, but I will somehow turn into six hours. Yeah, but then the lesson of the dinner, you said, was partly that then you realized, oh, I didn't get it. Like, I thought I got the real person. Then what am I printing? I just got another character. Then what am I printing? Well, then why wouldn't you say, you know what, I'll just write more TV I mean, I, I might say that. Yeah. I mean, I'll Are see. Are you going to say that? I might say that. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. This is like very, this is very intense like there are taxis with this like outside this building (laughs) there are people sending me text messages of those things there's a billboard on sunset boulevard that i was told about while i was in la for a sound mix a week ago and i drove as if in a trance and i remember when i lived in la the billboards you would write a story about someone And two weeks after it closed, the billboard for what they were doing would go up. And it had this relationship where I'd be like, we're saying hi to each other. And then my book (laughs) turned into a show that has a billboard. I have the same feeling I had when I would look at those monitors. I can't believe this happened. It does not feel – eventually I felt like a magazine writer, not just a movie character who had wackily found myself doing magazine stories, and I don't feel like this is real yet. I feel I feel more myself right here with you than I have in a long time. I'm going to cry again. Well. See, I told you. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> oh, no. And by the way, speaking of this podcast, you know, Sam Anderson is a real trigger for me. <laughs> Because I feel like he like he just writes the best stories he's and great. he's just like a heartbreaker and he finds the depth of something. I always feel like a good writer finds the depth that you knew was there but didn't acknowledge. He goes even further. And when he was on the podcast a few weeks ago and he was saying – I had to shut it off after he said the thing that I always believed, which is being a magazine writer is – Tom Juno says a version of this, too, is the best way of being a human. Like, when I'm writing a magazine story, I feel that I am living in a way that no one else gets to. And when I was writing a television show, people would say, how do you feel? And I'd say, I feel like I died. I just wanted to be on the next story. And I was sitting there in the mausoleum of something I wrote in 2016. And you remember how much I published. You remember that the reason you brought me on, I think it was, I I have not listened, I wanted to listen to the podcast, but I thought it would be too heartbreaking. But I remember it was like suddenly, or maybe in the introduction, it was like, I came out of nowhere and suddenly I was everywhere. Something to the effect of that. And now, and now what? I must have died. Well, now you're on billboards. That's, those, are, those are actors <laughs> but it's like still with the same title of the same thing you know after the Gwyneth Paltrow story published and a million times since then I get calls from if she does anything 
to be the talking head. Hmm. And I always very strictly said no to those things. I'll do what The Times wants me to do for publicity within that week. But you can't get too caught up in the thing or else it gets into your head and you feel that you're defined by it. Yeah. And now that ship has sailed. Yeah. You know? I don't know if I could write. I I don't know if my second book will be any good. I don't know. I will say every time you've said you've had something coming and said, like, I don't know. I know that feeling. But it has turned out to work out in each case. Maybe. So your second book. I don't know. But there has to be a point where you're like. Does there? I don't know. There doesn't have to be. There can be. You don't have to follow the the VH1 behind the music arc. That's such a nice thing to say. You could just. Keep progressing along. That's such a nice, that's why I love coming here. Thanks for coming on the show again. Oh, Evan, it's so good to see you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for Taffy for coming on the show for a third time. Her television show, Fleischman is in Trouble, is on Hulu. Should be out in a week or two from this air date. Thanks to Seth Kelly, who edited the show this week. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who did the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.